Part second, chapter thirteen of *The Well Beloved* by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part second, chapter thirteen. She is enshrouded from sight. One evening in early winter, when the air was dry and gusty, the dark little lane which divided the grounds of Sylvania Castle from the cottage of Avis and led down to the adjoining ruin of Red King Castle was paced by a solitary man. The cottage was the centre of his beat, its western limit being the gates of the former residence, its eastern the drawbridge of the ruin. The few other cottages thereabout, all as if carved from the solid rock, were in darkness, but from the upper window of Avis's tiny freehold glimmered a light. Its rays were repeated from the far-distant sea by the lightship lying moored over the mysterious shambles quicksand which brought tamelessness and domesticity into due position as balanced opposites. The sea moaned, more than moaned, among the boulders below the ruins, a throw of its tide being timed to regular intervals. These sounds were accompanied by an equally periodic moan from the interior of the cottage chamber, so that the articulate heave of water and the articulate heave of life seemed but differing utterances of the self-same troubled terrestrial being, which in one sense they were. Pierston, for the man in the lane was he, would look from lightship to cottage window, then back again, as he waited there between the travail of the sea without and the travail of the woman within. Soon an infant's wail of the very feeblest was also audible in the house. He started from his easy pacing and went again westward, standing at the elbow of the lane a long time. Then the peace of the sleeping village which lay that way was broken by light wheels and the trot of a horse. Pierston went back to the cottage gate and awaited the arrival of the vehicle. It was a light cart, and a man jumped down as it stopped. He was in a broad-brimmed hat, under which no more of him could be perceived than that he wore a black beard clipped like a yew-fence, a typical aspect in the island. "'You are Avis's husband?' asked the sculptor, quickly. The man replied that he was, in the local accent. "'I've just come in by to-day's boat,' he added. "'I couldn't get here afore. "'I contracted for the job at Peter Prort and had to see it to the end.' "'Well,' said Pearson, "'your coming means that you are willing to make it up with her?' "'Aye, I don't know, but I be,' said the man. "'Mid so well do that as anything else.' "'If you do, thoroughly, a good business in your old line awaits you here in the island.' "'With all me heart, then,' said the man. "'His voice was energetic.' and, though slightly touchy, it showed on the whole a disposition to set things right. The driver of the trap was paid off, and Jocelyn and Isaac Pearston, undoubtedly scions of a common stock in this isle of intermarriages, though they had no proof of it, entered the house. Nobody was in the ground-floor room, in the centre of which stood a square table, in the centre of the table a little wool mat, and in the centre of the mat a lamp the apartment having the appearance of being rigidly swept and set in order for an event of interest. The woman who lived in the house with Avis now came downstairs, and to the inquiry of the comers she replied that matters were progressing favourably, but that nobody could be allowed to go upstairs just then. After placing chairs and viands for them she retreated, and they sat down, the lamp between them, the lover of the sufferer above who had no right to her, and the man who had every right to her but did not love her. Engaged in desultory and fragmentary conversation, they listened to the trampling of feet on the floorboards overhead, Pearston full of anxiety and attentiveness, 
Ike awaiting the course of nature calmly. Soon they heard the feeble bleats repeated, and then the local practitioner descended and entered the room. "'How is she now?' said Pearson, the more taciturn Ike looking up with him for the answer that he felt would serve for two as well as for one. Uh, "'Doing well, remarkably well,' replied the professional gentleman, with a manner of having said it in other places, and his vehicle not being at the door, he sat down and shared some refreshment with the others. When he had departed, Mrs. Stockpool again stepped down, and informed them that Ike's presence had been made known to his wife. The truant courier seemed rather inclined to stay where he was and finish the mug of ale, but Pearson quickened him, and he ascended the staircase. As soon as the lower room was empty, Pearson leant with his elbows on the table, and covered his face with his hands. Ike was absent no great time. Descending with a proprietary mien that had been lacking before, he invited Jocelyn to ascend likewise, since she had stated that she would like to see him. Jocelyn went up the crooked old steps, the husband remaining below. Avis, though white as the sheets, looked brighter and happier than he had expected to find her, and was apparently very much fortified by the pink little lump at her side. She held out her hand to him. "'I just wanted to tell you,' she said, striving against her feebleness. "'I thought it would be no harm to see you, though tis rather soon. "'To tell you how very much I thank you for getting me settled again with Ike. "'He's very glad to come home again, too,' he says. "'Yes, you've done a good many kind things for me, sir.' Whether she were really glad, or whether the words were expressed as a matter of duty, Pearson did not attempt to learn. He merely said that he valued her thanks. "'Now, Avis,' he added tenderly, "'I resign my guardianship of you. I hope to see your husband in a sound little business here in a very short time.' "'I hope so, for baby's sake,' she said with a bright sigh. "'Would you like to see her, sir?' "'The baby? Oh, yes, your baby. You must christen her Avis.' "'Yes, so I will,' she murmured readily, and disclosed the infant with some timidity. "'I hope you forgive me, sir, for concealing my thoughtless marriage.' "'If you forgive me for making love to you.' "'Yes, how were you to know? I wish—' Pearson bade her good-bye, kissing her hand, turning from her, and the incipient being whom he was to meet again under very altered conditions, and left the bedchamber with a tear in his eye. "'Here endeth that dream,' said he. High men, in secret or overt guise, seemed to haunt Pearson just at this time with undignified mockery, which savoured rather of Harlequin than of the torch-bearer. Two days after parting on a lone island from the girl he had so disinterestedly loved, he met in Piccadilly his friend Summers, wonderfully spruced up, and hastening along with a preoccupied face. "'My dear fellow,' said Summers, "'what do you think? I was charged not to tell you, but hang it!' I may as well make a clean breast of it now as later. "'What, you're not going to—' began Pearson with divination. "'Yes, what I said on impulse six months back, I'm about to carry out in cold blood. Nicola and I began to jest, and ended in earnest. We're going to take one another next month for good and all.' End of Part Second Chapter Thirteen